Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have that we can spend in your word. Lord, we know that it's an awesome privilege to be able to worship you. It's an awesome privilege to have friendship and fellowship with you. And Heavenly Father, we also know that there are difficult times and there are hard times. There's painful suffering for many people. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you, as we sang, are God alone. You are on the throne, Lord. You occupy eternity before time began, Lord. The plan and the purpose of humanity is moving towards your ultimate goal. Lord, we know that you're going to reconcile all things in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Heavenly Father, again, we pray now that as we look at the courage of these men, captives, slaves in Babylon, that, Lord, we could find courage and that we would be willing to exercise our faith even under fire. In Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. This is the original turn or burn message. Verse 7, so at that time when all people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? 
Now, if you're ready at the time, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that's the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. The chapter begins with a great ceremony that's described in verses 1 through 3. It continues with a command that's given in verses 4 through 7. And then the conspiracy begins to unfold in verses 8 through 12. After the conspiracy is revealed, a program of coercion is enacted in verses 13 through 15, where it's followed by an act of courage, the willingness to embrace faith under fire in verses 16 through 18. Now, we are told in the Bible to expect suffering, to expect persecution. To expect tribulation. Remember, it was Jesus who said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We live in a world that's marked by pain and adversity and affliction and distress and grief and hardship and sorrow and unhappiness and misfortune. And surely, again, like last week, as day follows night and night follows day, you can rest assured that good times will be followed by, by bad times, hard times. There will be hard times, and there will be good times. The book of Daniel is a book about prophecy, but it's also a book about the promises of God. And we discover that God is sovereign. God rules. He is both king and Lord. And in our obedience or disobedience, in our tragedy and in our triumph, there is a God who occupies eternity and his plans and his purposes aren't going to be thwarted by your obedience or disobedience. You reach a certain point in life where you discover something that the world will go on without you. And God will accomplish his plans or his purposes with or without you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed God, or believed God was large and in charge, not just of the cosmos and not just of the universe or the solar system or the galaxy or their little patch of the planet, but God was in charge of their lives and in charge of their hearts. God was large and in charge whether God chose to deliver them from the fire or not deliver them from the fire. But the Lord certainly has made no promise. Listen carefully. 
The Lord has made no promise. No promise that he will spare you from life's sorrows. From life's setbacks. From life's tragedies. From life's conflicts. There's going to be pain and there is going to be sorrow. There's going to be difficulties, but we can rest assured it is true. It remains true that God is causing all things to work together for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And the book of Daniel is a citadel. It's a fortress for saints who face pain and hardship and persecution, who face a world system that stands in opposition to God and to the people of God and from the persistent attacks of the enemy, from the constriction of the world, from the demands of the flesh and from the persistent attacks of the devil. I've told you over and over again that we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we have three great champions, the Father who has overcome the world, the Son who has destroyed the works of the devil, and the Holy Spirit who occupies our hearts and our lives as we battle against the problems of the flesh. We've talked about the kind of faith that holds up under pressure. And we've talked about the kind of faith that folds up under pressure. And now we're going to talk about the kind of faith that doesn't simply hold up under pressure, but it holds up when you are faced with a very real fire. Later on, by the way, in the book of Daniel, we're going to read about the violence from the beast in chapter 7, who, according to chapter 7, verse 25, will persecute the saints of the Most High. In chapter 7, the word persecute is interesting because it literally means to wear down and then wear out. And sometimes the onslaught of the painful circumstances of life seem to just get you down and wear you down and wear you out. Sometimes we feel by the constant onslaught of trial and tribulation and suffering and persecution that we're not going to make it. But we are going to make it. Remember in the New Testament, Paul encourages us not to just put on the armor, but to put on the whole armor. Remember in the New Testament, we are told that the way that we're going to deal with the trials is we are going to submit to God. We are going to... Resist the devil and know that he is going to flee. In chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar builds an image on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. And remember, this image is a symbolic representation, not just of Babylon, which is a type and a picture of the world that stands in opposition to God. But again, all that it represents. Rebellion. Opposition. The image isn't simply an image, it's an image of a human being. And it was meant to focus attention and affection and worship of humanity. And now, once again, we're faced with the reality that all of the world is broadly based in two kinds of religions. Those that oppose God, the religions that oppose God and the one true faith that God has delivered. Remember what I've told you over and over again. Every human being in every generation will be constantly invited to come to God on His terms. Or they'll attempt to come on their own terms. Human beings, we know from the Bible, are made in the image of God. 
That's why we're called image bearers. So the real issue in the chapter is, will the image God, will the image of God, or will that which is made in the image of God, bow to the image which man has made? In other words, will the children of Israel, will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are made in the image of God, Will they bow the knee to that man-made image which becomes a type and a picture and a representation of all that is false and all that stands in opposition to God? One of the things that we forget as we study the book of Daniel is we we, we forget at the end of each trial and at the end of each test, there comes promotion and greater ministry. Remember, the three friends were promoted at the end of chapter 1. They were promoted after the trial in chapter 2 concerning, remember, the dream of the king. And now we're going to discover when we come to the end of chapter 3 that they're also promoted. Why is that important? Because remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bring more, that it will bring forth more fruit. Boy, that was hard to get out. Here is the idea that the suffering, the pain, the opposition isn't meant to derail you but to hone you, to prune you, so that you can bring forth much fruit. We obtain our advanced degrees in Christ's college, in the school of obedience, in the school of affliction. Some of you I know are working on your BSDLM. That stands for backside of the desert like Moses. You're wandering through the wilderness in that pain and in that suffering. And so we see the great ceremony. Look for yourself in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. One of the things I want to point out is that the time between chapter 2 of Daniel and chapter 3 of Daniel, some scholars have suggested it's as little as 7 years. Some have suggested it's as long as 17 years. But there's a period of time that has been taking place from chapter 2 and chapter 3. And from chapter 2, whether it's 7 or 17 years, but the king has in his mind decided that he's going to build this gigantic image. And let me ask you a question. What's prompted that? What has prompted the king to build this image? I think it can be summed up in one word. It's pride. Some have suggested, well, he's the king. He's the king of a vast empire. By the way, the Babylonian Empire stretched from the little border of Mongolia through Babylon and Iran, pushing past Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean, up to Assyria and down to Egypt. How does a king who has cobbled together an empire that stretches from the border of Mongolia to Mediterranean keep all of the people together? And here's what his bright idea is. Well, all of my subjects speak different languages and they have different religions. And so what we will do is we will have one national religion, one state religion. We're going to unite the vast empire under one religious roof. 
And in chapter 2, Daniel had said that the image in the dream was of fine gold. Remember what Daniel told the king. You are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar missed the whole point of the dream and the vision. Rather than focus on the fact that all human kingdoms are going to come crashing to a halt. Rather than focusing on the inevitable fact that his kingdom would end. That God's kingdom would last forever. His focus becomes fixed on his own golden kingdom. And when he receives, receives the revelation of God. You know what King Nebuchadnezzar tries to do? He resists the revelation and then he rejects the revelation. His focus becomes on his own kingdom. And by the way, if the king simply wanted to celebrate and memorialize the dream, he would have made a figure of gold and of silver, of brass and iron. And at the bottom of it, he would have a gigantic rock smashing it to pieces. But he's not trying to memorialize the dream. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to thwart the dream. In Nebuchadnezzar, we have a glimpse of a future king, a willful king, an antichrist. This future king, this willful king, is going to try to impose his will on the masses. And Nebuchadnezzar was given a tremendous power and he was given tremendous resources, but he abused his power and he abused his resources. Instead of honoring the true God, instead of exercising mercy towards the poor, which is going to be talked about in chapter 4, verse 27, he squanders his wealth. He consumes his wealth, he takes his wealth, and he, he consumes it on his own bloated ego. By the way, history remembers Nebuchadnezzar as a builder, not a warrior, as a planner, not a hero. And the image is huge. A cubit, by the way, in the Bible, varied from country to country. Typically, a Hebrew cubit was from the bottom of your elbow to your, your middle finger. That was a cubit. And so in some countries, it was 18 inches. From some countries, it was 20 inches. Depending on which country's standard you're using, the image would have been about 90 plus feet tall, which may or may not have included the base. The image, according to the scripture, is 60 cubits by 6 cubits. And, of course, the number 6 becomes typical in the Bible. It is the representation of a human being. Remember, six is the number of imperfection. If seven is the number of perfection, six is the number of imperfection. It becomes the number of humanity. It becomes the number of fallen short. And remember in the book of Revelation, when that full and final king appears who resists and rejects God and then drags humanity with him. Remember, here's the mystery. His number is six, six, six. The image is made of precious metal. It's made of gold. Is it pure gold? Probably not. If you took all of the gold that exists on the planet Earth, you could comfortably fit it in the narthex of our church. But this gigantic statue is probably gold-lined and gold, um, gold on the outside. So why build the statue out of gold? Remember what gold speaks of. It, it speaks of permanence. It speaks of perpetuity. And so the king, in his perverted and distorted wickedness, wants to create an image that in his mind speaks of permanence, speaks of, of perpetuity. But man-made religions 
can't last. They will fail. And so the king is under the impression that his God won't decay. It won't deteriorate. It won't devolve. But it will be the subject, by the way, of ultimate destruction. When he built it, he built it as an image to delight human beings. But he also built it as an image to defy God. Now, I want you to understand that because the image is man-made. And that's the essential ingredient of a false religion, a fake religion. The real ingredient really isn't gold. The real ingredients of this image is, number one, the king's rejection of the revelation of God. In this case, it means his dream. But in our case, it means the Bible. Listen carefully. In order to create your own religion, you know what you must do? You must reject the God of the Bible. You must reject the revelation of the Bible. You must reject what the Bible says. You must reject what the Bible reveals. You must reject what the Bible reveals about God and about man and about sin and about what it means to have a right relationship with God. And the second thing you have to do is make yourself the measure of all things. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Make no mistake, our text says that it's 60 by 6, but in reality, all idols are exactly the same supernatural measurements. 6, 6, 6. All man-made religions have their origin in man's imagination. And by the way, the fourth thing that you have to do to fabricate your own God is just simply rely on human reason and human understanding and meet the demands of reason. You see, there's no infinite mercy, uh, mysteries in a man-made religion. Um, in man-made religion, your mind has to be capable of understanding the mysteries of the God that you've created. And that God has to agree with your intuitions and feelings. And so that's why when you talk to your family and your friends, they're more than happy to say, well, you know, the God I believe is this kind of a God. And I, I know. What do you mean you know? Well, clearly this God is a God of your own imagination. You just simply made that God up. This isn't the real God that actually exists. By the way, a man-made God has to agree with our intuitions and feelings. A man-made God has to make us happy. A man-made God has to make us happy and not sad. And if you create a God, you have to create a God who won't judge you. And you have to create a God who you have the ability to redesign just in case the God that you designed earlier doesn't work out for you. You have to be able to sand off the rough images of the God that you've created in your own mind. I want to point out to you that all man-made gods and all man-made deities will move from the infinite to the finite. From omniscient to ignorant, from omnipotent to impotent, from omnipresent to localized, from immutable to mutable, from perfect to imperfect, from one to many, from good to evil, from invisible to visible, from personal to impersonal, from living to dead, from sovereign to slavery. And you will become like the God that you've created. 
And on the plains of Dura, by the way, to this very day, there stands a mound that's about 20 feet high, and it's an exact square. It's about 46 feet at the base, and it's believed to be the pedestal that housed this gigantic statue. I know, and this is only verse 1 here. Look at verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together to the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It was like the Olympics. And anyone who was anyone, all of the heavyweights, the guest list included anyone and everyone in authority. It was a who's who of all the important people, the rich, the famous, the educated. And it was a celebration. It was more than just a celebration. It was like a worship service. There's worship music. There was a sermon of sorts. The worship service wasn't God-centered. It wasn't God-honoring, but it was man-centered, and it was man-honoring. But make no mistake about it, it was a worship service. And they were there to worship. Make no mistake about it, they were there to worship the image But guess who that image really represented? Nebuchadnezzar. But guess what else that image represented? It became the sum and the substance of all men, every man, humanity. In their way of thinking, it was what was great and noble and best about humanity. And the life substituted for the light. The creature is substituted for the Creator, just like what Paul writes about in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 25, that these human beings substituted the truth about the invisible God with things that they could create with their own hands. And in verse 3 it says, so the satraps, these are the provincial governors, the administrators, these are the local governors, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and make no mistake about it these are wise men these are educated men these are men who all of a sudden think they're at a dedication service but now they're invited to join a new cult and the cult is the worship of the emperor And that's when we see the grievous command. Look at verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples. That means all the peoples of the nations. Nations and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They have their own holy band. Nebuchadnezzar's ragtime band. By the way, music is a wonderful thing, isn't it? It can move you mentally and emotionally. How many times have you gone to a church service where there is a familiar hymn that is being sung and it isn't the words of the preacher that is stirring your heart? It's the reality of the worship that is taking place deep inside of your heart as you're repeating familiar words that have have sustained you in difficult times. 
music in and of itself isn't good or evil, but it can be used in either a good or an evil way. Music can give you an opportunity to meditate, but music can also provide an opportunity to manipulate. And you can imagine the grandeur of the worship service that has taken place and an incredible and incredible songs are being sung. And then in verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fire. And, and, And again, now we... We understand where this is going. And whoever does not fall down and worship. By the way, remember what I said. King Nebuchadnezzar is the first Gentile ruler. There will be others after him. There will be rulers among the Medes and the Persians. There will be rulers among the Greeks. There will be rulers among the Romans. And the the Romans will identify... And then basically make perfect, if you want to use those terms, emperor worship. They're going to move the kingdom in the direction of self-worship, self-deification. But again, that is the religion of Satan. Remember, Satan spoke to Eve. He promised that her rebellion and her disobedience would have the net effect that if they refused to listen to God and if they would listen to Satan, remember his promise, you will be like God. The promise has been repeated in every generation. Your sin won't hurt you. It won't harm you. It'll actually make you better, smarter, greater. We're told in the Bible at the end of the age, civil authorities will once more insist on following a man-made religion. The Antichrist will proclaim divine honors for himself. And he will call all of humanity. And I'm going to suggest something to you. That he simply won't call them to worship him. He'll call them to worship themselves. Because he will embrace the notion that each and every one of us is a God. And that each and every one of us is really ignorant of the God within us. That we don't need a savior from our sin, but rather we need to remove the impediments and the obstacles that are keeping us from realizing our own sense of godness. And of course, it will be wicked and it will be wrong. But isn't that exactly what you see right now? People are not just nudging, but they're pushing, pushing ever forward into the arena. People aren't becoming less spiritual, less worshipful. They're becoming more spiritual and more worshipful. But the thing that they want to worship is themselves. And that worship is now going to be enforced and unified under Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, worship will become an important word in this chapter. The word worship appears some 11 times in the book of Daniel. And in the state-enforced religion, again, music becomes an important point. And so he basically says, you will worship, you will worship on my terms. And if you don't worship on my terms, you're going to be cast into what? 
fiery furnace. By the way, the word used for burning fiery furnace is an interesting Aramaic word that's been translated into the Hebrew, tanup. It means an execution furnace. Sinclair Ferguson describes King Nebuchadnezzar's earlier encounter as a religious conviction without a spiritual conversion. Yes, the king prostrated himself before Daniel. Yes, he had a real revelation. Yes, he confessed the Lord God of Daniel as the God of gods and the the Lord of kings in chapter 2, verse 47. But is he saved? Does this, does this man who's created this image, this homage to his own pride, does he even remotely sound like a person who has a right relationship with God? <laughs> Again, Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, We might be forgiven for thinking that Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man, that he was truly converted. In fact, he had experienced only a superficial and temporary setback to his self-glorification. His sinful heart had been shaken but not renewed. The truth was that instead of having a new heart, he had the same old hard heart. Now it was a little more hardened as the blatant blasphemy on the plain of Dura demonstrated like a fire that momentarily seems under control and suddenly explodes. Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have undergone a major change, but in fact was none the better. Indeed, the next stage of his sin was worse than the first before he was prepared to put to death those he didn't trust in chapter 2, verse 8. Now he's prepared to execute the only people in his realm that he can trust. Those who were under an oath from their God to be loyal in human relations. It's one thing to kill the people who you're afraid of and you don't trust. But it's a whole new level of sin when you begin to persecute the people that you should be caring the most about. I want you to remember this because for Nebuchadnezzar, the revelation of God was a, it was a spiritual diversion, but it wasn't a life-changing, heart-changing conversion. And that's tragically, sadly, what Christianity is for some people. And even the Bible and church traditions, it becomes a fond thing that you're sentimental. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, has never really come into your heart and transformed your thinking and how you respond in any given situation. And this becomes an important key for your faith under fire. If your faith is going to survive, it has to be a real faith. I'm here to tell you right now that cultural Christianity will not hold up under the pressure that comes when your world begins to fall apart. True conversion means that you turn from idols. To serve the true and the living God. That's what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. It was Paul's way of saying to the Thessalonians, We heard that when Jesus Christ came into your life, you really changed. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 7, look what it says. So at that time when all people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, languages, fell down and worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Hey, it's no big deal. They're idolaters. They already believe 
and multiple gods. The king is inviting them to accept one more god in the pantheon of gods. Do you realize that in the Roman world of the first century, they had religious freedom? Every Roman citizen could worship whatever god they chose. You were free to worship whatever god you wanted to. But when the emperor inaugurated emperor worship, he says, you're free to continue in your own religion, but we need to be able to add to your religion loyalty, commitment to the emperor. You see, the Christians who were killed in the first century weren't killed for religious reasons. They were killed because they were viewed as enemies of the state. Because they weren't loyal to the emperor. And so look at verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and they accused the Jews. These same Chaldeans, by the way, are the ones from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember when the king had the vision and he rounded up all of the holy men, the magi, the wise of the kingdom. And he pretty much said, I'm going to kill all of you unless you declare the content of my dream and the meaning of my dream. And Daniel and his friends basically saved their non-kosher buns. And this is the reward. Envy. They were still jealous. Jealousy is a terrible, terrible thing. And in verse 9 it says, They spoke and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! It was their way of saying, God saved the king. In verse 10 it says, You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. In other words, when you have your Babylonian iPod in your ears and you have the playlist set on on the pagan worship setting, that's when you bow. Verse 11, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And in verse 13, the Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Isn't this interesting? The king who governs an empire cannot govern his own heart. In rage and fury. The Bible says that there's something inside of us. That's wicked, selfish, ungovernable. Gentile domination has always been seen in the Bible as self-willed, idolatrous, intolerant, blasphemous. You see, man-made religion repudiates the sovereignty of God, is antagonistic to the Savior, and will fling the true followers of God into fiery furnaces, into pits, into lion's dens. Satan has always deluded one generation after the next. Cain kills Abel. Esau mocks Isaac. They imprison and behead John the Baptist. They imprison Jeremiah. They saw Isaiah in half. They crucify the Savior. And no wonder Jesus said, if they persecuted me, why does it shock you or surprise you that they persecute you? In verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now, you've got to understand just how remarkable this statement is. 
King Nebuchadnezzar is not the kind of king that gives you a second chance. If you disobey him, you're toast. The very fact that he calls them and he speaks to them specifically, I know, in in this perverted, distorted way, I think it's his way of saying, "I, I really like you. You are valuable assets to my administration. A lot of people at this point ask the question, where's Daniel? Have you? Where's Daniel? Scholars have debated that question. He's off away on affairs of state. He's in the citadel in Shushan. He's excused from the party because... King Nebuchadnezzar remembers chapter 2 and says, look, under no circumstances do I want to lose Daniel. Or he's there. And if he is there, I can guarantee you that he didn't bow either. But it could be, remember from chapter 2, that he is given some sort of pardon. It's remarkable because the king gives these young Jewish rebels a chance to repent. Is it true? Is it true that you would prefer death and disgrace and doom? You know what? They had every reason to bow. I came up with seven. Seven excuses to bow. Number one. You're not being asked to abandon your belief or worship or commitment to the true and living God. Just just bow. I'm not asking you to bow and pray. I'm not asking you to join the cult. All I want you to do is to bend over and bow. Here's number two. They're not being asked to adopt idolatry as a lifestyle, but to just commit this one act. This one act. And, and, and you know what? If First John chapter 1, verse 9 is true in the New Testament, it must be true in the Old Testament. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you. It's no big deal. Look, you can just do it and you can just make up for it later. And number three, the king has absolute power. They're forced to do his will. Therefore, whatever evil that they have to do is the king's responsibility because they were just simply following orders. I don't know. I just always think of the German war trials when I think of that. We were just following orders. Number four, Nebuchadnezzar has been their benefactor. He's given them a job and education and honor. And it's a big, what's the big deal to just strain their their conscience in this one little thing, compromise in this one little thing, show their, their gratitude in this one little thing. Number six, they were strangers in a strange land with strange customs. Who can blame them? When, besides, when in Babylon, do what the Babylonians do. And remember, what happens in Babylon Sticks in Babylon. Number six. Their ancestors, even kings and princes, made compromises. They built idol temples on the Temple Mount. What what the children of Israel had been doing for years and generations was far more grievous. Number seven. By complying with the king's decree, they get to live. They get to keep their job. They get to keep their high position. 
they're able to influence and help others in their hour of need. And if they refuse, the king kills them. And if they're dead, what good is that? Does this sound at all familiar to you? How many reasons can you find to compromise, to capitulate, to give in? How many rationalizations can you come up with? Remember what a rationalization is. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why you're doing what you're doing. And I could only find one. I could only find one. I could only find one reason to, to not bow. Do you know what it was? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down. You shall not bow down. You shall not bow down, nor shall you serve them. For I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations, to those who hate me, but showing mercy to Thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Only one reason. Just one reason. Because the Bible said, don't do it. Don't do it. It was the only reason they really needed. <laughs> and look what it says. Now, if you're ready at this time, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psalter, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down, and you worship the image which I have made. Good. Giving you a nice long laundry list of reasons why you should do it. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Read that last sentence. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Is that pompous? Is that arrogant? Who is the God? Who is the God who recently honored him with the unfolding vision of the future of humanity? Who is the God who revealed the mysteries on his bed? Who is the God who supernaturally provided the content and the interpretation? Who is the God who created the world and everything in it? How wicked, how wayward, how willful. How perverse. That he would reject the God who created him. That he would reject the God who redeemed him. That he would reject the God who fed him and honored him. Who he cared less about. Who created the universe. Who controlled his breath. You know what's interesting to me? Children of Israel don't even bring that up. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. To the three Hebrews, the willful king doesn't have the last word. The, the king is not divine. He's not really God. They don't fear the face of the executioner or the fiery furnace. They said, look, what they're saying is we're careful to answer you clearly, unequivocally, 
unapologetically. Look at verse 17. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. My friend Chuck Missler translates this passage. Up yours, O king! I, I don't necessarily see that in the text. I think what I see is that the children say, since Nebuchadnezzar has cast out a challenge to God, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you've cast out the challenge to God. We're not God, but, but we, we understand that God may or may not take up your challenge, O king. And here's the key, verse 18, but if not, you should underline it, but if not... Here's their position. With or without temporary deliverance. With deliverance. Without deliverance. The answer. Is no. Remember in Acts chapter 5 verse 29. When the apostles were faced with the pressure of obeying or obeying God. Or or obeying the, the religious leaders. They said we ought to. Obey God rather than men. That's the kind of faith that you're going to need in order to face the fire. It's the kind of faith that has confidence in the promise of God and and in the power of God. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Do you understand what he's saying? We go into the fire, we're, we're done with you. We don't go into the fire and we're delivered out of the fire. Either way, we're going to honor and obey God. Some of you are familiar with Polycarp. He was the aged bishop of Smyrna. He said before he died, he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from the nails. That was one of his last words. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna. He was a Christian since he was a child, but the Romans didn't get around to killing him until he was in his 80s. And whatever for the reason for the delay, it's the first recorded martyrdom in post-New Testament history. He lived during the most formative era of the church in the, at the end of the age of the original apostles when the church was making the critical transition from the second generation to believers. Tradition has it that he was personally discipled by the apostle John and that he was appointed bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern Izmir in, in Turkey by, by the original apostles. In his later years, he was the one who settled the disputes about Easter and he confronted heretics and and he pastored the church in Philippi, and, and he did all kinds of things. But, but late in his life, he was visiting a particular person, and he had a dream and a vision about how he was going to die. And Roman soldiers came, and they discovered Polycarp's whereabouts, and they came to his door. But because he was so old, the, the Roman soldiers wanted to let him go, but he insisted on going with them, and he was escorted to the local proconsul Stadius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a, a crowd of curious onlookers, and Polycarp seemed unfazed by it, and, and basically Quadratus said, look, don't you understand that I can put you in prison? And he goes, but you, you know what? You can never take Jesus away from me. 
He said, I can banish you. And he goes, Christ will follow me wherever I go. He said that he could be thrown to wild beasts, that he, he, he could be killed. And he says, oh, that you would be the ticket to my entry into the Savior's presence. When Quadratus said he could be burned at the stake, Polycarp, in a not-so-under-his-breath, said that his fire would only last for a very short while. He said, why do you delay? Soldiers grabbed him, and they began to nail him to the stake, but Polycarp stopped them, and he said, leave me as I am, for he who grants me the ability to endure the fire will make me remain in the pyre unmoved. And without the security you desire from the nails, he prayed aloud, the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. The chronicler of his martyrdom said, quote, not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And the account concluded by saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. His testimony, his faith in the fire, under fire. You need to understand something. Their faith wasn't simply in the hope of deliverance from the fire. Their faith wasn't in deliverance. Their faith was in God. And these men of faith didn't consider death in the flames as a failure of faith. But, ab, but rather an indication of God's will. Do you remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 and 37? The, the writer of Hebrews records this point in time and space. It says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. But before that? They quenched the fire. Do you remember what I said to you? Nebuchadnezzar's name means that he identified himself with the god of fire. That fire was the one thing that could undo everything else. But faith under fire means faith facing fire. Trusting God. Trusting His Word. Faith does not mean that we either know or understand the specific purpose all the time. Faith means a willingness to love Him and trust Him and obey Him and follow Him. And sometimes that is spelled S-U-F-F-E-R-I-N-G. The one thing that we don't want. A fiery furnace hardly seems fair for obedience, does it? But God is going to work. Remember what Jesus said, unless the seed falls into the soil and dies, it won't bear fruit. Do you think Stephen had any idea that young Saul of Tarsus was holding his cloak, the cloaks of the killers, and that he would become a champion of faith? Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, their faith 
did not hold fast simply by accident or by the decision of the moment. It had grown strong because in previous tests they had grown strong in faith as they had given glory to God. As they look back on the crisis of the fiery trial, they must have seen the previous tests in a new light. Their significance was to prepare them for this monumental crisis so that through their faithfulness, glory would redound to God throughout the generations. Guess what? Your faithfulness in the little things will lead to the faithfulness in the medium-sized things. To the faith that when faced with fire, we'll be able to survive. Do you realize that there really will come a day in your life when you will be able to say, I would rather obey God and die than disobey God and live. But we have the whole rest of the chapter for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know there's a difference between faith under fire and faith in the fire. And Lord, we know that these young men are going to march into a fiery furnace. They have every expectation that they're not going to make it. Lord, the story is so familiar to us, we know how it ends. But Lord, we don't necessarily know how it's going to end for us. Lord, we know that there are trials and there are sufferings. There are painful circumstances of our life. There is a constant invitation to compromise, to quit, to simply give up. And Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray that we will not substitute the revelation of God for a man-made vision. Lord, we pray that we would not substitute the true and the living God who occupies eternity for that false figure, that man-made phantasm, a God who is unjust, a God who doesn't see all, a God who weighs carefully, and a God who executes judgment. Lord, we thank you for grace. And we thank you that grace precedes judgment. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a time of grace and that you, the true and the living God, have given us a gracious provision for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, you've given us a Bible that we can read and you've given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we could live in a way that honors and pleases you, Lord, we pray that we would submit to the things that the Bible says and that we would allow the Spirit of God in us, the Holy Spirit in us, to live the kind of life that's honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray for the person in trial right now. The, the person who's facing a series of decisions that's going to mean either obeying God or disobeying God. Of compromising or walking in submission and obedience. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, I pray that with their heart, they would be able to say out loud, like Job, even if you kill me, yet will I serve you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.